Our legal system isn't designed to deliver justice to wronged defendants. Despite all the rhetoric about presumption of innocence and innocent until proven guilty, the system doesn't function in a way that actually prioritizes innocence. A not guilty verdict doesn't mean the defendant has been proven innocent. It simply means the prosecution failed to meet its burden of proving the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. When a defendant is found not guilty, the record of the arrest and charges isn't automatically sealed. That requires a separate legal process. A not guilty verdict doesn't trigger inquiries into law enforcement decisions to arrest or prosecutorial decisions to seek conviction. Overturning a wrongful conviction is even more difficult under our system. Even when innocence is clearly established, as in cases where DNA evidence rules a person out as the possible perpetrator, the legal system doesn't immediately vacate the conviction or release the person from prison. There are layers and layers of procedure to go through, all while the wrongfully convicted person continues to bear the consequences of the system's mistake. Our legal system has no satisfactory mechanism for clearing the name of someone accused of a crime. Nothing undoes the injustice and cost of being accused, charged, and forced to navigate the legal process. Christian told us, The worst part about it is having to imagine that um, my name, like if you just looked at my name and there would just say, you know, animal abuser next to my name, that was... Uh, the worst thing that I had to, like, I guess, come to, to come to terms with. Um, because it, it was really hard knowing that uh, I was just going to be labeled as something, regardless of whether or not there's any truth to it. And there's just nothing I could do to clear my name in any way. You're listening to Vulnerable Creatures. I'm Matthew Schnipper. And I'm Lauren Huck. This is Episode 7, Compassion Fatigue. When the legal system fails to produce a just result, the press, at the very least, can tell a more complete story. Everything you've heard up until now is our attempt to do just that. To show there is much more to this case than a one-page affidavit, a few court transcripts, and a plea agreement. Remember what we promised to do in Episode 1, to treat people as three-dimensional humans— to show them as complicated individuals in all their shades of gray. We've presented contradictions and perhaps unflattering analysis sometimes, asking tough questions. But we've tried to balance that by letting our own empathy and compassion guide our way. We're well aware that people make mistakes. Nobody should be judged by only their worst moments. When we first embarked on this project, we asked Christian if he was okay with telling his story to us, knowing that someone could find it online after he exercises his right to seal his record. Publishing this story meant that his name would always be attached to allegations of animal abuse. Here's what he said. Yeah, that's uh, totally fine by me, because it's, you know, it's different than looking at my name and seeing just the guilty next to it. It's seeing the entire story next to it. So for me, that feels completely different. Another thing that the media can do that the legal system can't is ask questions about flaws in the process and try to hold institutions accountable for their mistakes, even if that's just in the court of public opinion, by shining light on an issue. The statements made by Corporal Cheney in her probable cause affidavit contradict written and verbal statements by three veterinarians. Christian was charged and prosecuted based on the allegations contained in that affidavit. 
That concerns us. And we thought the Humane Society would be concerned too. On three different occasions between December 2019 and January 2021, when approached with questions about discrepancies between Corporal Cheney's affidavit and the vet statements, Humane Society representatives stood by their officer, saying she had probable cause, and they pointed to Christian's plea as evidence the affidavit's allegations were justified. We even called the nonprofit agency's board chair, who declined to comment. The thing is, we weren't asking about probable cause. The fact that a kitten was injured and Christian was the only one home at the time were definitely grounds for probable cause. We were asking about inconsistencies in the charging document that made the cause of injury appear more certain and more likely a case of infliction of harm rather than merely failure to seek care. If 97% of all criminal cases are resolved by plea deals, it doesn't make sense to automatically assume guilt when a defendant enters a plea, especially when doing so leads an institution to overlook or explain away mistakes or inaccuracies in their employees' work. Even if there was no malice behind it, wouldn't the Humane Society want to learn from any mistakes, especially with animals' lives and people's reputations and liberty at stake? In Colorado, police officers and sheriff's deputies are all certified by Colorado Peace Officer Standards and Training, abbreviated as POST, and they're subject to its oversight. Law enforcement agencies employing post-certified officers are legally required to investigate allegations of untruthfulness. When three veterinarians say an officer has misrepresented their medical opinions, and worse, that they never spoke to her at all, surely the Humane Society has a duty to investigate possible untruthfulness. But a spokesperson from the Office of the Colorado Attorney General we reached out to confirmed that animal control officers are not post-certified and don't fall under its jurisdiction. And Libby Hennitz, Bureau of Animal Protection Program Manager, told us that Bureau of Animal Protection certified agents, like Corporal Cheney, are supervised by their employer, who would be responsible for addressing any complaints regarding the officer's conduct. That means that even though animal law enforcement officers have the same power as police officers to charge people with certain criminal offenses, they aren't subject to the same supervision or disciplinary actions. And recall what we shared in episode two about how much less training ALEs have compared to police and sheriff's officers. The Humane Society alone has the authority to decide whether or not to investigate possible untruthfulness by their officers. They didn't see the evidence of discrepancies as serious enough to merit an investigation, aside from calling Corporal Cheney in to answer some basic questions about Christian's case. We should also note that as a nonprofit, they aren't subject to open records requests like our local government agencies are. So reporters can't compel any information the Humane Society doesn't wish to have see the light of day. For example, they don't comment on personnel matters. Remember when Cheney's supervisor, ALE Assistant Director Lindsay Vinya, told us that they teach their officers that out in the community, they aren't judge and jury? Well, aren't the administrative supervisors doing just that back in the office? Playing judge and jury? Well, who else has authority to oversee the Humane Society's law enforcement decisions? That's what we sought to find out when we called the local city council and county commissioners, who respectively funded this Humane Society in 2020 with $1.65 million and $574,000. For that money, did that buy them any oversight? 
Nope, it turns out, no oversight. So what about the DA's office? Surely it would be concerned about prosecuting someone on the basis of inaccurate information. If Corporal Cheney intentionally lied in her affidavit, as Attorney Spicer asserted in the motion to withdraw Christian's plea, she may have committed the crime of perjury. And even if there was no intention behind the false statements, they were, nevertheless, inaccurate according to all three veterinarians. When we approached the district attorney's office in July 2020, then-Chief Deputy District Attorney Jeff Lindsay was unconcerned by the discrepancies. He said things are spoken between officers and doctors, in this case vets, that don't always make it into the notes, that they hedge a little bit. He noted the DA's office would have prosecuted this case regardless of a vet statement. He didn't get treatment for the cat even after, you know, even if you believe his story, which is pretty uh, sketchy. I don't believe how the injury occurred is material to the prosecution because the charge was failure to get care. Failure to seek care wasn't the sole charge, though. The additional charge of inflicting serious injury based in large part on the alleged vet statements that the injuries could only have been human-caused, made the case appear more severe than a failure-to-seek-care case. This, in turn, impacted Christian's assessment of the risks of going to trial. Those inconsistencies are relevant to an examination of how the case played out. When asked if the DA's office looks into situations where an officer misstates facts, Lindsay told us, So again, I don't think it happened in this case. I really don't. I think that everything is above board, and I don't think there's any hint of any misrepresentation. As prosecutors in law enforcement are held to a higher standard, so certainly an officer that is misleading information or has provided misleading information, not something that anybody's just going to say, oh, never mind. It's something that agencies themselves look into, and agencies themselves are, are expected to police themselves. And it's not... It's not something that anybody likes uh, because it, it, it can you know, affect victims' cases. It can, you know, damage, you know, credibility of an agency that, you know, it's so important that the law enforcement has the trust of the public. So when it happens, you know, it's treated pretty severely. And, you know, there's different things that agencies do. All have internal affairs organizations or internal affairs departments. And that's a big thing that those agencies look at, is that there is an officer is called departing from the truth. But the Humane Society doesn't have an internal affairs department. And animal control officers working for nonprofits aren't subject to the same oversight and scrutiny as traditional law enforcement officers. So, with a case involving charges filed by an ALE, who is looking out for the public? Our second approach to the DA's office under new District Attorney Michael Allen was in January 2021, seven months after speaking to Deputy DA Lindsay. By this point, we had more information in hand than we did earlier in our reporting, including that all three vets say they never determined Storm's injuries were human-caused and that they say they never spoke with Corporal Cheney at all. Remember from last episode, DA Allen's new public information officer is Howard Black, he was the co-founder of the Domestic Violence Enhanced Response Team, DIVERT, and the champion for change back in the day when he was an officer at the Colorado Springs Police Department. Black was already somewhat familiar with our case since we'd previously sat down with him to learn about the link between domestic violence and animal abuse. 
Black requested we provide the DA's office with everything we'd gathered, and in February 2021, we turned over eight pages summarizing evidence of the discrepancies in Cheney's affidavit, along with multiple supporting documents. In early March 2021, Black told us that the information was under active review. Following up in June 2021, we learned that the DA's office was erroneously under the impression the case was sealed. They'd previously used statutorily outdated paperwork in Christian's case, including a clause that said he wouldn't be allowed to seal his record despite a change in law that gave him the right to do so. Attorney Spicer argued that Bryson Perkins' failure to identify this illegal component in the plea paperwork was one way he failed to render effective assistance of counsel. So to clarify, the DA's office had Christian sign paperwork saying he couldn't seal his record when he actually could, and they later thought Christian had sealed his record when he hadn't. Finally, in August 2021, more than six months since we submitted our questions, and a full year after we ran these same concerns by then Chief Deputy District Attorney Jeff Lindsay, PIO Black sent us a reply. Though the office declined to say how many prosecutors or members of the DA's office worked on this review, we were assured the case was thoroughly examined. They told us, and this is true to their exact words, after reviewing your allegations, the affidavit and interviews, this office does not agree with your assertion this was a falsified affidavit. The officer reporting could have detailed her investigation in more depth. However, there is no evidence that she intentionally falsified this affidavit. It should be noted the defendant's conviction has been set aside. In lawyerly fashion, the DA's office called our inquiries allegations and proceeded as if we had a burden to prove to them Corporal Cheney intentionally falsified the affidavit. The response overlooks the fact that they asked us to provide documentation of what we'd discovered in the course of our reporting. We simply shared information indicating the office might have prosecuted Christian on the basis of inaccurate facts. We asked questions about what actions they could and should take if they did. We weren't really alleging anything. Also, we didn't use the word intentional regarding Corporal Cheney's affidavit. Intentionality was never the point we were raising. Responding that there is no evidence she intentionally falsified this affidavit seems overly dismissive. Shouldn't the signed statement by Dr. Ariel Ayler be considered some evidence of intentional falsification? Dr. Ayler had said, Corporal Cheney's affirmation that the injuries were human-caused is just strange to me. I can't explain it. I didn't say that, and I never met with anyone. This is clearly not my opinion. The vets all say they never spoke with Cheney. So where do the statements the officer attributes to them in her affidavit come from? It's certainly possible she intentionally made them up. And by narrowly focusing on Cheney's intent, the response demonstrates zero concern about the impact of the discrepancies. Let's not forget, Christian's lie about not knowing what had happened to the cat was viewed as a sign of guilt and played a significant role in the DA's decision to prosecute him. Cheney's inaccuracies, on the other hand, were brushed off by the DA's office. Even accepting that the discrepancies aren't intentional, the question remains of what duty the DA has to right a wrong for charges based on unintentional falsifications. The DA's office told us prosecutors only have a duty to set aside a conviction when there's clear and convincing evidence a defendant did not commit a crime. That really doesn't come into play here. Our inquiry wasn't about whether the defendant committed the crime. It has always been focused on discrepancies in the charging document. 
in response to our query, the DA's office also noted that the conviction had been set aside. Yes, it has been, because Christian completed the terms of his plea. Those terms included fines, paying restitution and court costs, community service, and mandatory therapy and education classes. It was Christian's compliance with the system that earned dismissal of all of his charges, not the DA's office deciding the affidavit's inaccuracies required them to act. We asked the DA's office how the public could be confident that justice had been served in any case in which Corporal Cheney wrote the summons and complaint. In other words, how do we know these types of discrepancies were an isolated incident? Their response was, this officer is no longer employed at the Humane Society. Any additional comments about employment should be addressed to the Humane Society. Translation, she doesn't work there anymore, problem solved. Which skirts the question of the accuracy of her past work over roughly two decades. That would be quite a Pandora's box of paperwork to open. And we did ask the Humane Society, but they wouldn't comment on personnel matters. And we couldn't compel them through open records requests. Hence our concern about no ultimate accountability. Should the Humane Society wish to protect their own, they could. The one concession the DA's office makes regarding issues with Cheney's affidavit and their response is that the animal law enforcement officer, quote, could have been more detailed in her investigation. But details aren't the problem. A factual conflict is. From the very beginning of our reporting, we wanted to know. When a citizen is compelled into the criminal justice system by a law enforcement officer taking bad notes or accidentally misquoting key sources, who is held accountable for that? We've learned that the answer is no one. The defendant is the only one to pay any price for mistakes made by the people who work in the system. A month after the DA's office responded to us, the local daily paper, The Gazette, published an article headlined, Toxic Workplace at Colorado Springs DA's Office Decried. The opening paragraph read, the Colorado Springs-based 4th Judicial District Attorney's Office is underfunded, overwhelmed with felony cases, and in a state of turmoil, according to seven lawyers who previously worked there. The former employees said they felt overworked in what some called a toxic environment that harmed their mental health. Remember how much we've heard about high caseloads for prosecutors? They're the reason prosecutors don't even do preliminary investigations on most cases, and the reason our system has become more plea-focused than trial-focused. But according to former prosecutors we spoke to who don't want to be named, the high caseloads in this jurisdiction are especially grueling, leading to tremendous stress and low quality of life. The newspaper story centered around a deputy district attorney inside the office taking his own life a month prior. Before doing so, he'd sent an all-staff email expressing concerns about conditions in the office and the leadership of D.A. Allen and his predecessor. The email raised questions about the hiring of a controversial deputy D.A., Dave Young. As district attorney in another jurisdiction, Young faced allegations he'd had an affair with a victim advocate on his staff who later committed suicide. Young didn't bring in an outside prosecutor to handle the case, even though the woman's family claimed she was the victim of foul play. And Young's name had hit headlines months earlier because his office oversaw the review of Elijah McLean's death in 2019 at the hands of police in Aurora, Colorado. The 23-year-old black man had committed no crime, was unarmed, and appeared on body cam as calm and mostly cooperative during a confrontation with police during which they put him in a chokehold and sedated him with ketamine. 
He died three days later, sparking national outrage. Young decided not to pursue charges against the involved officers and was quoted as saying, the prosecution cannot disprove the officer's reasonable belief in the necessity to use force. Later, a statewide grand jury reviewing the same evidence handed out a 32-count indictment against a handful of police and paramedics involved in McLean's death. So this is the guy newly elected DA Michael Allen hired as a senior deputy district attorney. The aggrieved DA's all-staff email also mentioned the demotion of another longtime prosecutor and the promotion of a prosecutor whose family contributed to Allen's campaign. The article went on to cite three female attorneys who'd resigned within the last year, saying the office had a climate of discriminating against women. After terminating Deputy District Attorney Jeff Lindsay, who we've referenced throughout these episodes, Allen did promote a woman to fill the second highest position in the office. Roughly a year later, she resigned as well, giving no reason for her departure. In his book, Saving Justice, former FBI Director James Comey talks about addressing faulty hair analysis testimony in thousands of cases. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, scientists from the FBI started asserting that hair analysis provided much stronger evidence than the science supported. They wrote reports saying a hair at a crime scene was consistent with having come from the defendant's head instead of acknowledging it would be consistent with lots of heads. They testified that crime scene hair was likely or probably the defendant's. Sometimes, they would tell the jury that the hair found on the victim definitively came from the defendant's head. 96% of the cases the FBI reviewed contained faulty testimony. That testimony was used in 33 of 35 cases that resulted in a sentence of death. Nine defendants had already been executed, and five died of other causes while on death row. Here's what's mind-blowing to me. Comey says the FBI people weren't lying. They believed what they said about their work. They were well-meaning. It was still all wrong. None of those assertions were supported by science. These FBI examiners get the benefit of the doubt that they weren't lying because they are the good guys and they work for the government. None of these people were prosecuted for lying because they meant well even though their errors led to the execution of nine people. Their behavior impacted thousands of people, as opposed to the one or even handful of people impacted by a defendant's alleged behavior. The failure of criminal justice institutions to care more about accuracy and truthfulness isn't due to high caseloads and overworked investigators and prosecutors. It's baked into the system itself. The unspoken, perhaps even subconscious, belief by the good guys that only bad guys get charged with crimes. Defendants are deemed bad guys, so they don't get the same benefit of the doubt when they make mistakes or aren't completely truthful. Comey met resistance among FBI scientists when trying to right the wrongs that had occurred. He says, People say inspiring things about their commitment to justice, but it is really hard to get humans to admit their mistakes in pursuit of their commitment. As systems thinker Amber Patak told us, people compartmentalize at work. They're doing their job, and they want to do it well, in a way that keeps them employed. The people who worked in FBI labs were more concerned about the consequences of going public with the hair analysis issue, and the potential of defense attorneys to discredit their future testimony, than they were about the people they helped wrongfully convict. If the FBI director encountered resistance in writing thousands of incontrovertible wrongs, how can we expect overburdened prosecutors 
or animal law enforcement officers to look into a potential wrong that didn't even lead to jail time. For most of our investigation, we only had Corporal Cheney's notes and affidavit to give us glimpses into her perspective since the Humane Society of the Pikes Peak region directed us to her supervisors. That didn't just frustrate us. It turns out it frustrated her. In February of 2021, we finally got the chance to speak with her. She had been recently terminated by the Humane Society for reasons unrelated to our story. She cited an ugly ending to a 21-and-a-half-year career. She says she was fired four days prior to when she planned to give notice of retirement, causing a loss of thousands of dollars in her 401k. So she'd hired legal counsel. Now she could talk to us as a private citizen. We were surprised by her willingness to discuss this case with us. But, like Christian, Corporal Cheney wanted a chance to tell her side of the story. You know what I don't like is when I read an article, they say, oh, we tried to get a hold of so-and-so, and they said no comment. I'm like, you know, I don't like that. That's what you know, why would I have, why would I have no comment? If, if I want to tell the truth and I want my, my truthful side of the story out there, why, why would I not want to talk about that? I want to tell the truth no matter what. I have no problem with that at all. You're not allowed to talk to the media. I'm not allowed to talk, you know. And it's almost like just following all that up inside of us. I want to defend myself. As far as telling the truth and, and being ethically correct and having integrity, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge advocate of that. And I'm one of those people that's like, when I hear of a law enforcement officer in any capacity being untruthful, or um, doing something, you know, wrong or out of line, hey, I'll be the first person to say, you know what? They need to go. That, that person shouldn't be in law enforcement anymore. Hey, you know, they need to, they need to fess up to whatever it is that they made a mistake on. But, and I'll also be the first person to say, you know what? No, not everybody's perfect. None of us are perfect. Sure. You know, we're all, we're all flawed. As we've heard in previous episodes, Corporal Cheney insists she spoke with all the veterinarians and that she accurately reported what they said. She doesn't have access to her reports when she speaks to us. It's all from memory. I've had thousands of girls' behavior, so sometimes with recollecting those kind of little specific details, I couldn't be 100% on that, just to be honest. But she does have a strong recollection of speaking with Dr. Walker. I've talked to that veterinarian two times on a different occasion involving a dog case and on this cat case. I remember the, the veterinarian coming um, up front and, and speaking to me now. Of course, it was very brief and short and to the point, which was obviously the reason why I know exactly what she said to me and refusing to, you know, obviously provide that information. If it's me or the veterinarian, who's somebody going to believe? Probably the veterinarian more than me, but what they don't know is the background of it is that this particular veterinarian, they were adamant that they absolutely did not ever want to go to court again and that they had had this horrible experience. In episode one, we wondered if Cheney's reaction had anything to do with Andrea's mention of Christian being autistic. When we asked Cheney about it, she didn't recall hearing that he was autistic at the time. To the best of her memory, she first hears about it when she's called in by her supervisors, after Christian's case has begun. For what it's worth, a mention of Christian's autism is in her case notes, though as she said, she doesn't have access to those anymore, and she's worked thousands of cases. So expecting her to remember a detail in one case that was more than a year ago is a big ask. But she's adamant she wouldn't have held that against him. I am far from discriminatory against anybody, trust me. I have a son that um, has uh, mental illness and he is biracial. 
So I'm the last person that would be discriminatory against anybody. Yeah. Would it have weighed on my decision? I don't know. You know, if it, in the same respect, it's not up to me in the end. <laughs> it's up to it's up to that district attorney. Right. You know, if they want to take that into consideration that, okay, we found out that he's got autism, you know, this, that, or the other, now we're going to do this or that. Hey, you know, so be it. We obviously have to remain unbiased, and we have to make sure that we have all of our ducks in a row and, you know, I never wanted I never wanted to jump the gun on any case with anybody because there could potentially be, you know, ten other people out there that could have that could have done it. During our interview, Cheney noted commendations she'd received from neighborhood watch groups, as well as the sheriff's department, for a felony cruelty case that involved the killing of two horses in twenty sixteen. She was a top investigator. She'd been promoted to the rank of sergeant in 2020, and she was in a high supervisory position herself. I love helping people, and obviously animals. I consider animals, you know, they're um, family members. You know, they're not human, but they're pretty damn close to it. She brought personal experience and empathy to her work. She's a 60% disabled Army veteran. I've also, you know, experienced uh, domestic violence in my personal life. They thought that, you know, it'd be a good a good opportunity for me to become a desert officer. You see some crazy stuff in law enforcement, especially it's that kind of job, and it really affects you. So I can't even follow up on my cases. I don't want to know what happened, you know, whether they're guilty or not. You can't become emotionally involved, but obviously, you know, it's almost like having PTSD. Compassion fatigue is a real thing. And yet, she says... I want to talk about it. When you're working there, they offer you help. Don't get me wrong. There's help out there. When you really start to let this stuff out and you, you talk about it and stuff and you let it out, you really become emotional. And that stuff hits you like a, you know, like a hot rock on the head. Yeah. And uh, there need, the officers need more opportunities to open up and to be able to tell their side of the story. I think that they should, like, shut them down so much and be like, oh, no, the attorney's going to take care of it. Oh, no, you know, you can't talk to them about this or that. And I think that, like, there needs to be more openness, you know, because they they don't get to, to really have an outlet and they don't get the training that they need and they don't get to, to really, really, like, let it out, you know? They, they need more compassion fatigue training. And that's with all law enforcement. We just try to advocate for the animal the best that we can. We don't get the opportunity to advocate for ourselves as officers. And, and I think that's where they, uh, that's where they fail. This is just one system failure from her perspective. Another, directly relevant to our story. All law enforcement needs training on how to deal with people's mental illnesses and autism. Because how many people have been killed by the police because they have a mental illness? They have next to zero, zero training on that. There are people that should be alive today because they were, they were killed or falsely accused of something because of a mental illness. And my own son has a mental illness. No, he's incarcerated right now because of his mental illness. I want to pause on that. Think about it for a moment. Cheney's own son is incarcerated. Whatever happened with this particular case and this particular affidavit, Corporal Cheney isn't out to charge people with crimes they didn't commit. She's focused on doing good, protecting animals from people who harm them. I've had way worse cases than this. I mean, I've had cases where, you know, we, I don't even want to talk about them. They've been so bad. It's those cases, over so many years, 
that eventually creates such a mental burden that something has to give. My husband and I felt like uh, my job is too stressful. I've had two surgeries because of my job directly. Wow. And just time to leave, it's, the stress is too much. Yeah, there's been a lot of physical health problems because of my job. And my husband said, enough is enough. You need to leave. Otherwise, trust me, I would have stayed with it for another 10 or 15 years if it was completely my choice. But unless I want to literally kill myself, I had to get out. Corporal Cheney concluded our interview by saying... I wish the best for everybody involved, trust me. I try to be a very compassionate person. I just wish, I wish the best for everybody, especially, especially the young man. I hope that he's doing, he's doing well. Though we were finally able to speak to Corporal Cheney, we never did get to talk directly with Andrea or her mom, Teresa. We wish they hadn't declined to speak with us, because we would have been able to tell a more complete story. We do at least have access to the interview Andrea gave to Spicer and Zook. Andrea closed it out by sharing a few digital messages between Christian and some of his gamer friends that she'd discovered when she logged into his Discord account on an old computer of his she'd taken when she moved out of their apartment. The thread of messages from early 2018, months before the incident with Storm, used vulgar language, with one of his friends suggesting Christian should beat up his girlfriend if she had any problems with him playing video games. A different person messaged that Christian should kill Andrea if she had a problem with him getting a sex doll. We read this as crude, but facetious. Andrea has a different take on it, though. I just want to share that so that you understand who this person is. I don't think those are the kinds of things they would come forth with. And again, it may just be talk, but they are things that were said. I thought it was something that somebody should know about. Not that I'm scared for me, or it's what he did, but just that these were things that were said. So once again, she notes not being afraid of Christian, but expresses concerns about his character. A few months after this interview, a year and a half after her last correspondence with Christian, Andrea got married. To our knowledge, she still has Storm, who fully recovered except for the loss of her eye. From the day he came home to an empty apartment, Christian never saw Andrea or Storm again. In a text to us in mid-2022, he said, The distrust that the facts around the case and the case itself placed in me was really hard to shake, and I still, to this day, have a hard time trusting other people. Christian's mother, Shannon, says he continues to suffer from nightmares and anxiety over the whole matter. The main thing I hear coming from him on a regular basis is like this, like, why is this all happening to me? Why is this so hard for me? I just, I just always... I'm concerned. Like, is he okay? How's he doing? Is he emotionally okay? Is he getting along okay? And, you know, we message back and forth a lot, and I check in on him a lot. But I tell you, he is by far the most resilient person that I've ever met. I would love for him to be vindicated. I would love for him to be able to have a clean slate moving forward as far as his record goes. And... Mostly, I want his mental health and his inner peace to be back where it should be. Because this has really upset his whole life, his whole perspective. Christian's father, Mark, remains devastated and angry about the toll this experience has taken on his son. At one point earlier in our correspondence, he told us, quote, he's in hell. Some of that is the autism, but he is broken. 
and they all get to move on while we desperately try to salvage the pieces and put him back together. I want them to know what they've done, to feel what they've done, every one of them. Watching what this has done to our beautiful son, I want revenge. I simply can't believe there's no legal method of recourse. So Mark turned to the court of public opinion, writing an open letter to the district attorney's office, which Matthew published in the newspaper he works for. Here it is. My son's name is Christian. He's 23 and on the autism spectrum. His case number is 18M7914. When a person that is blind, deaf, physically disabled, non-English speaking, etc., enters the courtroom, they are greeted with a host of accommodations. When a person with autism enters a courtroom, who cares? Not you. You do not even pretend to want to understand the complexities of what it is like to live with autism or how it may impact his ability to fully navigate the case. He was just another number in your machine. You failed your oath. You failed him. You failed your community. Where were you when he was crying in the halls of the court? Where were you when he was desperately begging me to let him plead guilty, to make the pain stop? When I had to look him in the eyes and advise him to choose lies over truth? Where were you when his world crashed down all around him? Where were you when my wife would pick up calls from him in the middle of the night, trying to help him make sense of something that never should have been? He pled guilty out of fear because nobody would listen. To fully clarify my position as a constituent, I am wealthy, I am white, and I am conservative. I support the heroes in our military, police, fire, and EMS. I despise the defund the police movement, but you lost me. I have lost faith in you, your office, and the broken system you represent. You've broken your promises and our hearts. When offered a binder full of evidence, you turned a blind eye. You hid behind platitudes and weak legalese. When you had the opportunity to serve and restore faith in our legal system to a community member with compassion, empathy, and humility, you did not act with integrity. You chew through our community, handing out judgments to numbers in a file. You don't know their faces, their names, their pain, and you sure as hell could not possibly care less about the wrecked lives you leave behind. I read the response your office gave to my son's case, how you don't agree that the affidavit was falsified. We in the community do not get to simply disagree with the DA and walk away. My son did not get to walk away. He had to stand in court over and over, faced with lie after lie, knowing that's not who he is. You made him out to be a monster and you don't even know him. It's time to take justice back from the uncaring. It's time to break the machine. We are not numbers, we are people. The legal system strips people of their humanity It casts them as good guys and bad guys, victims and perpetrators, preventing them from being seen as complex human beings and making it nearly impossible to achieve positive resolutions that allow for healing, growth, and healthy closure. Criminal cases are rarely as clear-cut as they may seem from probable cause affidavits or even the evidence presented at trial. One additional piece of information can change the entire picture. As you've heard throughout these episodes, the system isn't working well for anyone, but it's especially brutal for those who don't fit the stereotypical norm. It's time to build systems that acknowledge and honor differences rather than disproportionately punishing the many, many humans who don't fit into one-size-fits-all policies and procedures. Here at the end, we hope it's clear why we named this story Vulnerable Creatures. It starts with the premise of fragile animals being dependent on humans but refers to so many people in our story, too, especially Christian. 
Neurodiversity may well, and probably should, be the next human rights movement. This one seemingly minor misdemeanor case helps illustrate why. With the growing prevalence of autism diagnoses, the world ahead of us is certain to look vastly different than the one we're living in now. And our capricious legal system isn't equipped to serve and protect neurodivergent people. We've heard from experts about the better world we could create for people and animals, how we could better serve people on the spectrum, how we could reshape our systems at large for the benefit of all. Those are all aspirational, envisioning a rosier future. But that's not how the system worked for Christian. Here's what he wants you to know about the experience that forever changed his life. Just because somebody has been convicted of something doesn't mean anything. It was robotic. It was like they, they didn't care. It was just a system. You're just supposed to go through it, and nobody's supposed to actually care whether or not anything's true. And then it spits you out and, you know, assigns you a value, guilty or not guilty. And it seems to me that people treat this like it's just any other job. And um, that means mistakes are made. And I think a lot of people in these positions are on some sort of power trip and don't realize how much their decisions affect people's uh, entire lives or maybe they, you know, enjoy they have that power. I'd immediately be skeptical um, of almost any situation where anybody's accused of something. I immediately remembering this, like, well, what is, what is the proof? What are the facts? Is there a discernible truth or is this you know just hearsay and people out to get somebody else just you know for the fun of it uh so i don't know i, I try not to make any assumptions almost ever about that stuff anymore Vulnerable Creatures is written, directed, and hosted by Lauren Hug and Matthew Schnipper, and produced by Vehement Visuals in Colorado Springs. Voice actors in this episode are Daisy Pinkerton and Angie Glenmore. Logo design by Ryan Hannigan. Original music by Michael Johnson and Dave Pastor. We're dedicating Vulnerable Creatures in memory of Michael Johnson, one of our voice actors and musicians, and my childhood best friend. He passed away during the making of this production. He was a friend to all, with the brightest of spirits, as kind and loving of a person you could ever meet. Oh, and he was a devoted cat daddy. Special thanks to Christian and the Breuer family for trusting us with their story. And to all of our Patreon supporters and others who helped us along the way. We're listing them in full here at the finish line. Brad Halleck. Craig Limley. Adrian Tuck. Faith Miller. Christy Payne. Bridget Dinwiddie. Lauren Kunze. Joy Armstrong. Mike Nance. Christy McGee. J.L. Fields. Ginny DeVries. Corey Hutchins. Wendy Carson. Genevieve Warren. Craig Nowak. Rich Tombino. Mindy Nichols. Larry Fonda and Andrew Ketchum. Marjorie Nolene. Shane Lyons. Reagan Opal. Ellen Lurie. Melissa O'Donnell Hall. Aikta Marcolier. Andrew Falk. Bonnie Roberts. Amy Sweet. Evan Delaney. Kate Aviv. Cheryl Tullis Sirois. Richard Hayes. Anna Parrish. Also, a special thanks to Racket, from whom we were fortunate enough to earn a small podcast prize. Every time you go, I don't know what to do. 
Oh, come. 